Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. And so when God looks at us, he sees us through that. He's looking down through the purity, the innocence and the perfection of his son. And that's how he sees us. And if that doesn't amaze you, your amazeometer is just busted because that is just the most amazing thing. There was a time when just about everyone could recite the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps not so much these days. There is a phrase within the prayer that simply says, Thy kingdom come. But what does that actually mean? Dr Corbett has been working through a short series on the kingdom of God and this week concludes by looking at this short but powerful phrase. So let's join Dr Corbett now to conclude the kingdom of God series as we learn what it means for us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, I I ask you now that you would help us to hear your voice through your word. May, for some, as my mother used to say, my grandmother used to say, may the penny drop today. May they get it. May things just go, ah, click. May people have an aha moment. May there be lights go on. May there be moments where people go, I see it now. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to herald your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is part of the Kingdom of God series. I'm going to wrap it up, which which just feels odd for me to even suggest that because the Kingdom of God was the predominant theme of Christ's ministry. The predominant theme. Everything he said focused around the Kingdom of God. And this is thy Kingdom come. We're going to take that expression out of the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. I need to recap because I'm going to make a couple of points here that you will need to be reminded of some of the recaps so that you you get the point that I'm about to make. When Christ came, there was an expectation by the Jews that the Messiah, the Anointed One, that's what Messiah means, would would come out of nowhere and come with an army and kick out the Romans and bring peace to Israel at last. That was the expectation. And a part of the expectation, Isaiah 9 verse 7, prophesying about the Messiah of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's what Jews were expecting because the kingdom under the time of David extended way beyond the borders that it subsequently extended to. And so every Jew now in a confined place less than a third the size of Tasmania was longing for that. One day Messiah is going to come. The government will be on his shoulders. He will kick out the Romans. Yes, bring it on. That was the expectation of the Jews. So if they had read the verse before that, they would have read this. You should know it from Christmas. For unto us, a child is born and a what? Son is given. He didn't become a son because he was born a child. He was the son of God and he was given in human form. So the Jews expected that. They did not get what they expected. (laughs) They were sorely disappointed with Jesus. 
At one point in the Gospel of John, we read, this can't be the Messiah. We know where he was born. And the expectation was that when Messiah came, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't be able to know. So as time went on, the Jews were disappointed. And we see this Jewish disappointment, really, even in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples are there as Christ is about to ascend. And his Jewish disciples go, ah, you're going? Uh, we have a little bit unfinished business. Um, your, your, your army? Where, where's the army? Where, where's the, the Romans are still here. What, what's go- And Jesus says, you don't get it. <laughs> That's not what I'm about. And then pff, off he goes. Translates back into that dimension that we refer to as eternity. And so for the next 300 years, Christians began to go, ah, he's talking about an inward transformation of the soul. (laughs) He's talking about something that takes place in our heart that causes us to cry out to God as if he's our father and we can have a direct relationship with him. And by the way, happy Father's Day. (laughs) Is there any father here, don't put your hand up, who did not get breakfast in bed this morning? I said not put your hand up. (laughs) Neither did I. Anyway, but I did get treated well. Very well. And for 300 years, Christians are going, it's a spiritual kingdom, dummy. Got it, yes. And they ignored what the government did. They ignored the Romans and they actually evangelized Romans. And many Romans, many... Roman soldiers came to Christ. In fact, by the 3rd century, so the 200s, Romans had this really weird practice of if it was a girl, it wasn't wasn't a very good chance of that girl living very long. They practiced this horrible thing called exposure. And the early Christians, out of sheer compassion for these young baby girls, would go into the marketplaces at night where snow would fall and it was going to be, and, and the babies would be dead by the morning if nothing was done. Or they'd take them into the forest for the wolves to savage them. And the Christians of the third century, late second, early third centuries, would go into the forest and rescue these, these baby girls. They would go into the market squares in the middle of the night and rescue these baby girls. And you know what happened in Rome demographically? Rome ran out of women for Roman soldiers to marry. And then someone says, I think I know where you find some women, some young girls. And they said, oh yeah, where? Uh, The Christian churches. And so it's called dating evangelism. And the annals of history tell us that many Roman soldiers and Romans came to Christ by looking for a wife. And I'm not putting out any evangelism strategy for us today at all. But it is, it's just an interesting piece of history that the Christians didn't see this as a military kingdom. They didn't see it as a political kingdom. They saw it as one based on love and compassion for others, even when they didn't believe what 
what Christians believed. That's the history of it. And then something dramatically changed. In around about 313, 312 AD, Constantine, as we've seen, converted to Christianity. And that's when many Christians began to reinterpret what the kingdom could mean. And they saw, because Constantine imposed it, that civil and church leadership was initially seen as the role of the emperor. Christians began to see, well, hang on, the emperor is now a Christian. Here's the unfair question that if you're not a a Roman history buff, you may not realise. Anyone know what the title of the emperor was in 312, 313? In fact, from 256 BC through to about the 9th century, I won't... Pontifex Maximus. The title of the emperor was Pontifex Maximus. It simply means, it's, it's Latin. It's, does anyone speak Latin here, by the way? No? Oh, good. It, um, it, means, <laughs> it means the big cheese. It doesn't actually mean that, but it means I'm the boss. Pontifex, the supreme. Maximus, the best. The supreme best. What do you think, Chris? Your business card. IT. Basically, the Pontifex Maximus of IT. The supreme and the best. That was the title of the emperor, Constantine. He saw his role as not one of secular and religion, because for them, Romans didn't think like that. Everything was just one. And so when he became a Christian, he saw it was his role to get the church sorted out. He was the one who called the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD, which we have a thing called the Nicene Creed that resulted from that. Now, by the 8th century, track with me. I know there are people going, oh, history. Oh, great. Just wake me up when he's done. By the 8th century, (laughs) the kingdom of God was then seen as Christendom. So you can see it's, it's a combination of the word Christian and kingdom. Christendom. In which the Pope asserted, the Pope asserted, Pope Leo, either the 9th, 10th or 11th, he asserted the title Pontifex Maximus for himself. The Pope did. And here's what happened. This was largely because a document was presented in the 8th century called the Donation of Constantine. It was actually a forgery. And according to church historian W. Robert Godfrey, who paraphrases the whole document of Constantine, which the Pope presented at that time to assert that he was actually the supreme ruler of the world, W. Robert Godfrey paraphrases it like this supposedly a letter from Constantine to the Bishop of Rome in um, the early 300s I have this vast empire that the Lord has given me and it's difficult to rule this whole empire therefore I give the western half of my empire if you know anything about Constantine he moved from Rome over to Istanbul and renamed it who knows Constantinople because of his ego named it after himself so now over here in the west he says I therefore give the western half of my empire to the Pope 
And the Pope flashed that around and in the year 800, the Pope said, I will then crown an emperor of the East because I'm basically the top dog. And that emperor's name was Charlemagne. Anyway, that's the history of how Christians got the kingdom of God kind of really mixed up. When we go to scripture, and we'll come into scripture in a moment, Jesus did not intend for that to be the representation of his kingdom. Not at all. He didn't envisage it to be a political or military realm at all. And some people say, well, hang on, Pastor, you just did something that's like mixing religion and politics. No, this is 100% religion. This is 100% care for people, which is what we in Christianity believe is our duty for all people. So this is how Jesus put it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not a physical thing. Jesus said, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or as other translations can rightly render it, the kingdom of God is within you. You transact the kingdom of God within you. It's something that takes place in your soul. So now we we come to this thing when the disciples had gone to Jesus. And if you want to jump in now at Luke chapter 11, we'll see this. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray like that. How do you do that? And this is fascinating because we read in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus would often forego sleep to go out by himself and to spend time with his father. Now I heard a great illustration of this from a clinical psychologist by the name of um, uh, Arch Hart. And Dr. Hart put, illustrated some of these, these truths here like this. He said when he was 18, he'd recently become a Christian and his church combined with another church youth group to go on a camp. And they went to a camp And across the other side of the room, he saw a girl. Their eyes locked. But there was dozens of kids everywhere else. And he thought, I really want to get to know that girl. And so he slowly made his way through the room, over to that side of the room. And it's, oh, hello. (laughs) And introduced himself. And he was faced with a problem. The problem was, do I talk with her here knowing that we're going to get interrupted and there's all sorts of things going on? Or do I make my move? And the move is this. Would you like to come for a walk with me? It wasn't an impure move. It was a move designed to get her away from all the distractions so that he could get to know her. And so she said these magic words. Yes. Magic word. And they walked down to the lake, sat down and talked. And he said, the more we talked, the more I fell in love with her. And he said, later on I found out that the more we talked, the more she fell in love with me. Did I just hear, oh. And Archibald Hart tells that story to say, 
This is what it's like for the Christian who wants to get away from the hustle and bustle of the crowd and ask God, could we go for a walk? And go down to the lake and just sit with God alone and just pour out our heart to him. And the greatest example of that kind of kingdom experience is Jesus. Luke tells us that he was praying when he walked. He was praying when he was coming up out of the waters of baptism. He was, he was just praying, always talking, always talking to his father. It's, it's an it's a interesting thing. The, the more, you know, Kim and I are coming into our 33rd year of marriage and we're in it now and, and the, I'm finding that she, I've always, always thought she was fascinating, but she's really fascinating. She is, she has one of the most twisted sense of humours you, you'd ever hope, to, you, you don't want to hope to meet a Hungarian's twisted sense of humour, but I'm finding out more and more about Kim and how she's wired and how she thinks and it's just fascinating. And this is how dynamics of relationships work, which is why uh, I just think when guys get sucked into the web of pornography, uh, it's such a deceptive poison. It robs you of the ability to get intimate with another person. And that robs us when we do get trapped in that web of being able to have an intimate relationship with God. Because Archibald Hart says this, if you can't develop closeness with someone face to face, you will never, he says, be able to develop intimacy with God. Because this is a lesser transaction and that is a greater one. And if you can't do the lesser one, doing the greater one is going to be impossible. Jesus did it. And Jesus... When the disciples, it says, Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And this is what he said in verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name, worship. Your kingdom come. First line, your kingdom come. First petition, your kingdom come. And here's the question I'm going to ask and hopefully begin to answer when Jesus taught the disciples and ultimately it's recorded for us this model prayer when that opening line should also tell us something about prayer the fact that the disciples saw him praying in places where hang on you haven't got your prayer shawl on you haven't got your prayer book out you're not chanting and ranting and repeating mindless repetitionist prayer and Jesus actually says don't do that just talking by the lakeside with his daddy, so to speak. Just talking, just talking. And the disciples saw that and thought, we have never seen that kind of prayer. Now you might take it for granted today. But here, this is kingdom. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. It means you can talk to daddy, God, our father. So when they said, teach us to pray like that, we want that relationship with God. We want to pray to him when we're angry with him. Timothy Keller says that he looks at Job and people hear Job going, God's not fair, God's this and God's that. And, and Timothy Keller says, that's Job 
expressing the depth of his relationship with God because he feels open and transparent enough to tell God what's really in his heart. It's beautiful. This is kingdom praying. When Jesus said, pray your kingdom come, King James, thy kingdom come. What did he mean? Well, the Bible reveals, as we've begun to see, that the kingdom of God will actually culminate in a day of judgment. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, Paul writing, he says, And then, right at the end, Jesus will hand the kingdom over to his Father. And then judgment, resurrection, to either eternal condemnation for those who rejected God's offer of entrance into the kingdom, or eternal life for those who said, yes, Daddy, yes. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for washing me clean. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for sending Jesus in my place as my substitute. Thank you that you've given me the righteousness, the right standing, the innocence and purity of Christ. You've given it to me. And so when God looks at us, he sees us through that. He's looking down through the purity, the innocence and the perfection of his son. And that's how he sees us. And if that doesn't amaze you, your amazeometer is just busted because that is just the most amazing thing. And there are people I mentioned before, there are people who carry almost to their grave guilt and shame needlessly. Oh, what grief we often bear. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, the hymn says. All because we do not carry to the Lord in prayer. Well, you can have it dealt with right now. You may have even said, I don't think I could ever get over this. I don't think I could ever forget. I don't think I could ever forgive. And I'm here today as God's herald to tell you in this moment, the power of Jesus is here to heal your heart because he has established the kingdom right now. And you can come into it. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that the dead, small and great, will all stand before God. All the living and all the dead will stand before God. The sea gave up the dead. All the dead will be there and humanity will be judged. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, it's in that day that he will be on the throne and he will separate all people either as sheep or as goats. He will do it. And then it says that the kingdom itself will be transformed into a, I'll use the term, supra-physical kingdom. And what that means is, at least we can get this, it will be transformed into a new dimensional kingdom where there will be no crying, sighing or dying. Who longs for that day? Therefore we pray, oh God, may your kingdom come. Oh man, there are days when it's crying and it's sighing and I feel like I'm dying. Oh God, please Lord, may your kingdom come. But in the meantime, and this is what I hope you hear, but this is what it says. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Notice that? It's a new heaven and earth. Not a new heaven and a new earth. Why does heaven need to be replaced? Earth I get, but heaven... Because the dwelling place of God will now be with mankind. It will be a new heaven and earth. One place. 
So you can talk about one day when we get to heaven, don't, you can talk about that, but I'm going to look at you like, we've got some work to do. And the work to do that I'd be thinking is, you need to know this is not about location, this is about who you're going to be with for eternity. And God will be with mankind in the new heaven, and then God will be with mankind. The whole point is we get to be with God. We get to be with the one that we wanted to sit down at the lakeside with and have a talk for eternity. And the Bible says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. And right now in the kingdom that's right now, we get to experience some of that. And I'll show you that in a moment. It says he will wipe away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more crying. And death will be no more. No more dying. Neither shall there be mourning. No more sighing. Nor crying. Oh man, I could have put that in as well. Uh, Nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is what the new heaven and new earth will be like. We will get to be with God for eternity. This is the culmination, the ultimate place of where the kingdom is heading. There are some people who have this notion of a thing called the millennium. That it's going to be a physical kingdom where Jesus reigns on a physical temple in a physically rebuilt temple in a physically rebuilt Jerusalem. And I just think that is a complete misreading of what Jesus said it was going to be and what the Bible says it's going to be. The expression thousand years, thousand in scripture, really, book of Revelation, full of symbols. This is a symbolic number. It means not meant to be counted because it's so big. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And so on. I could ask him a thousand questions, Job says, and each time he could answer. Christ shall reign for a thousand years. Here's the question. Will there come a time when he won't reign? No. You see what a thousand means? It's not a physical 1,000 year reign from Jerusalem. It means Christ is reigning. So praying for the kingdom to come involves its future aspect. Bring it on. But it also has some here and now implications. And here is, I think, one of the most powerful here and now implications. We get to sit by the lake with God right now, metaphorically. We get to spend time with God and being in his presence. And I love that, that account. And you've heard me say this before. I know you have. But in John 21, where, where the resurrected Christ has not been seen for a few days, and Peter says, ah, oh, I'm going fishing. And... About seven or eight of the other disciples who were with him say, ah, we'll come too. And they go out fishing. And you know, it says they were out all night fishing. And then someone on the beach has the audacity to yell at this. Have you caught anything? No, comes the answer. And I, can, I don't think it was said in that tone. You know, the shut up, mind your own business. Have you got somewhere to be tone? And then the person on the beach says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And at that point, one of them at least would have gone, I've heard that before somewhere. Someone said that before. While the net's being put on the other side of the boat. And that's when John says, it's Jesus. And that's when Peter puts his tunic on and swims to shore. And what does he find? Sorry, I'm laughing because it's hilarious. There's Jesus 
sitting down on the beach with a fire going, cooking what? Fish. (laughs) All his needs are met in him. All your needs are met in him, I should say. He already had breakfast planned. Jesus loved fish. He loved frying them. I don't know if he liked deep frying them, but he, he grilled them, he ate them. And there he is cooking fish. And Peter comes. Remember, there's Peter. And we don't quite know, apart from the three questions Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter is transacting with Jesus. And then they turn around and we, they hear grunts and groans. Uh, uh. Then so, you can hear muttering. Uh, oh, stupid Peter over there. Look at him sitting there doing nothing. Help us get these stupid fishes. <laughs> and then Peter goes, oh. And the, the, the seven or eight others just drop the net. And Peter comes over. He grabs it. And he hauls it all in like it's a sled on snow. 153 fish, big fish, John says. And I don't think that number's symbolic. It's just like, my goodness me, how the heck did Peter do that? Because he just sat with Christ. He just sat on the, literally on the lakeside and spent time with Christ and he was physically strengthened. That's what it's like to be in the kingdom now. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or a premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select The Kingdom of God Part 5 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the Kingdom of God has future significance as well as here and now implications. It calls followers of Jesus to live in a particular way, demonstrating love, cultivating goodness and holiness. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.